block someone from taking part in the basic practice of sharing information, then you're insulting them in a capacity that's really essential to human value, namely our capacity to reason and to share knowledge. Big worry is that in general, when we think we're seeking objective truth, and particularly in a community, uh, folks do it in mechanisms where they're unaware of the ways in which judgment can be biased or that some speakers are treated with less charity than others. This is Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Today, we're discussing epistemic injustice and the law. Epistemic injustice occurs when an individual is wrongfully undermined in his or her role as a knower. One aspect of epistemic injustice involves the ways in which biased assessments of a speaker's credibility can undermine that person's ability to relay his or her experiences. This is particularly salient in the context of trials, since a juror's inaccurate assessment of witness credibility based on factors such as race, gender, or socioeconomic status can thwart the truth-seeking function of trials. This could occur, for example, if a jury fails to believe that a woman could have been sexually assaulted because of her employment in the sex industry. I'm Megan Kogashal, online editor of the University of Chicago Law Review. Today's podcast features interviews with Miranda Fricker, professor of philosophy at CUNY Graduate Center in New York and author of a book called Epistemic Injustice, Power and the Ethics of Knowing, and Michael Sullivan, professor of philosophy at Emory University. First, some background on the concept of epistemic injustice. So the general idea of epistemic injustice is very simple. It's the idea that there can be situations where an epistemic subject or a knower or an inquirer, someone who's capable of knowledge and true belief and of giving evidence and so on, is wrongfully undermined in their capacity as a knower. And that that's a kind of injustice that it's worth teasing out from other kinds of injustices, which it's often bound up with. And the first kind is what I call testimonial injustice. So that relates to any kinds of telling when we tell each other things, whether trivial things like my telling you the time or a serious thing like someone giving testimony in a court of law. And that happens when somebody receives a deflated amount of credibility owing to some prejudice on the part of the hearer. So that's testimonial injustice. Examples of that can be either what I call systematic or incidental. So they can be driven by a prejudice that actually is a liability for the person in other areas of social experience. And the prejudices that are like that tend to be prejudices relating to identity, like race, class, gender, sexual orientation, religion, and so on. You can have testimonial injustices from other kinds of prejudice, much more one-off kinds of prejudice. So an example I use in the book of incidental testimonial injustice is imagine you're a scientist and maybe you do work of a kind which is perfectly good, but where there's a kind of dogmatic prejudice against it, maybe you tend to produce work with negative results and the people on the research panels who are assessing your work for uh, publication or for further funding have a kind of academic prejudice against scientific work that produces negative results. Insofar as that's a prejudice, it's a one-off incidental prejudice that won't affect you in any other areas of your life, only in your scientific research, but it might be nonetheless a very serious and as it were, consequentially disastrous uh, injustice for you if it hampers your career very significantly. So you're receiving a decreased or deflated level of credibility owing to this prejudice, 
in that particular locality of your life. So that would be an incidental testimonial injustice. And as I've just tried to indicate, on the whole, systematic testimonial injustices will be much more serious uh, than incidental ones. The second broad category of epistemic injustice is hermeneutical injustice. This relates to an individual's ability to interpret his or her own experiences and understand the experiences of others. The other second kind of basic epistemic injustice I called hermeneutical injustice. And that happens not really in relation to telling each other things, but at a prior stage in connection with the kinds of wrongful disadvantage that someone might have in terms of making sense of their own social experience and or being able to communicate it across social space to other social groups. So this kind of epistemic injustice concerns the availability of appropriate concepts that we would need to use to understand our experiences and or communicate them to others. And so this one is more about intelligibility than about credibility. As with testimonial injustice, Professor Fricker explains that there are both systematic and incidental hermeneutical injustices. An example I use in the book of systematic hermeneutical injustice, we cast our minds back to early 1960s, where women in the workplace might well have been suffering what we would now easily call sexual harassment, but at the time did not have that concept to make easy use of insofar as they had to invent this concept for themselves through consciousness raising and so on, they succeeded in doing so. And then the second job of work is to succeed in spreading that concept across sufficient social space so that they can render their experience intelligible to those social others to whom they need to render it intelligible, for instance, to complain to their employer that they are suffering the sexual harassment. That kind of... Um, hermeneutical or wrongful deficit of intelligibility counts as wrongful for me only if the explanation for why there's the lack of the necessary concept in this example of sexual harassment is significantly explained by person's social group being subject to what I call hermeneutical marginalization. So that's to say they're a member of a group who doesn't generally get to contribute on an equal basis with others to the shared pool of concepts and social meanings. So what we've done is kind of pan back and think about different kinds of injustice, and we're used to thinking about political and economic injustices of various kinds where we'll observe a this or that group, that they don't get to participate or contribute equally to um, that kind of social good, economic participation or political participation. And my thought was, well, there's such a thing as, as it were, conceptual hermeneutical participation, and we'll see that some groups don't get to contribute their concepts and meanings to the pool on an equal basis. And if so, they're at an unfairly increased risk of having social experiences they need to understand and or need to communicate to others, but where the collective lacks those concepts. And so they'll be hermeneutically frustrated. But we can imagine a one-off or incidental kind of hermeneutical injustice where someone may be a member of all sorts of powerful groups, perhaps these are proverbial, well-educated, uh, economically well-off, white male, etc. Still, he may have an experience which, for social reasons, is rendered perhaps intelligible to him and other members of, of a particular group, but cannot be expressed across social space. And so we might imagine, let's pick the 1950s or 1960s again, because historical examples are always simpler. If you are a powerful white male and you are the head of a corporation, or maybe you're a political leader, 
but you're gay, this would be an experience that you may well entirely understand and have the concepts to understand, but the understanding of homosexuality in public life and across social space was not in place yet for you to be able to render your experience and your sexual orientation uh, intelligible across social space. Professor Fricker explains that the consequences of being misunderstood or not believed can be serious, both for the individual and for society as a whole. If I allow any kind of prejudice to depress the level of credibility I give someone when he tells me something, I do him a testimonial injustice. I'm the perpetrator of the injustice, and he is thereby wronged. That won't be the only way we can look at testimonial injustice, but it gives us an interpersonal way into first seeing what the nature of the wrong is, kind of at ground level, at the personal, in the personal context. In such a case, what have I done to him? Well, I've insulted him in his capacity as an epistemic subject, as a knower, as a testifier. More specifically, I have blocked him or hampered him from pushing information and knowledge that he's got into the pool. And so I'm disallowing him from taking part in what, at least I think, is an absolutely fundamental epistemic practice through which fundamental respect for each other as knowers is expressed, namely the sharing of information, default presumptions of competence and sincerity that are in play, um, unless that should be in play, unless you have a special reason not to believe someone. And so when prejudice comes in and as it were blocks someone's word wrongfully, you're stopping them exercising a capability that is really absolutely basic human capability and one through which we respect each other and express respect for each other. And so I've characterized that blocking or exclusion, if you like, from that kind of practice as going very deep by way of insult. In many situations, and certainly in situations in courts of law, it's always very serious when someone is wrongfully disbelieved or their word, their testimony is taken less seriously than it otherwise would. And there we start seeing the personal insult, which goes deep, as having very grave consequences that go beyond perhaps that personal transaction. Now, if they're the person who's accused of the crime and they're then charged as guilty and go to prison for it, that's a catastrophe for them and a catastrophe justice. And so one might say, well, the worst thing about that situation, the real injustice here is that they go, an innocent person goes to prison. That's true. That's much worse than simply not being believed when he should be believed. But of course, what we see here is that the testimonial injustice is the gateway to these other injustices. And so were it not for the testimonial injustice, perhaps the other injustice wouldn't have happened. As Professor Fricker explained, undervaluing witness testimony due to prejudice can lead to incorrect outcomes in trials. Recently, concerns about racial prejudice have been raised in cases alleging excessive use of force by law enforcement officers. For example, in the second trial of University of Cincinnati police officer Ray Tensing for the shooting death of Sam DuBose, the prosecution challenged the defense's dismissal of two potential jurors as being seemingly based on race and questioned the officer about racial disparities in his patrol statistics. This trial, like Tensing's first, resulted in a mistrial. In similar cases, the jury is faced with weighing the testimony of authority figures against the victims who are frequently from minority groups and are disproportionately assigned a deflated level of credibility. 
An additional factor that can impact trial outcomes is that, without extrinsic evidence such as body camera footage, there are few witnesses to the events leading up to a use of force. This allows law enforcement officers to control the narrative about what occurred, which carries over into the juror's consideration of testimony. Professor Sullivan notes the importance of considering how social dynamics inform jury decisions in this context. When you become aware of the problems of epistemic injustice in testimony and, and the potential problems in interpretation hermeneutically that are tied up in a community, that you, you know, need to think about the basic assumptions of your truth finding and making practices, right? So when I, I look at the jury, a jury is, is a very important institution in American society for determining the truth of a particular set of facts. And we often tend to think that that determination is kind of independent of a bunch of other aspects of social power. And but what both Professor Fricker and Medina show us is that it's probably not. Professor Fricker provides an example from To Kill a Mockingbird that shows how imbalances in social power can lead to injustice. One central and legal example of testimonial injustice that I use in the book to set things up is from To Kill a Mockingbird, Harper Lee's novel, where famously, notoriously, the person who's accused of a crime of rape is Tom Robinson, an African-American man, in a context where there is an all-white jury. And, of course, it's set in 1930s Alabama, so we need to try and send our imaginations into that context and the, how the courtroom looked and what the economy of credibility already was uh, at that time. And he is accused of raping a white girl, Myella Yule, and is not believed by the all-white jury. And one of the things that I think is very interesting in the way, at least I read Harper Lee, is setting up the situation in the novel, is that I think she is not presenting us with a situation where the nature of the racial prejudice and the racial uh, interest and supremacist ideas of the day cause a jury to know very well that Tom Robinson didn't do it and to be able to process the evidence that's been presented by Africa Finch in the defense, which is absolutely conclusive. There's no way Tom Robinson could have committed this crime. Now, how Harperley presents it, I think, is that the jury, it's not the case that they believe Tom Robinson, but then decide through prejudice to convict him anyway. So it is very, very close to that. I think how she presents it is that the all-white jury actually fail to do their normal epistemic duty of assessing the evidence properly, and they come genuinely through prejudice to the wrong conclusion. So they're so damaged in their uh, capacity to assess things that they fail to do their duty, as Atticus Finch puts it. They fail to do their duty. They fail to believe Tom Robinson in his summing up statement. Africa Finch says to the jury, do your duty. And then he says almost onto his breath in a way that the other members of the court can barely hear, believe Tom Robinson. And I think Harper Lee is telling us actually they fail to believe Tom Robinson. This isn't to exonerate them at all. They are thoroughly guilty of uh, grossly irresponsible and vicious epistemic conduct, as well as coming to the wrong legal decision. But what I think she's showing us is that prejudices can go so deep as to uh, utterly corrupt 
the epistemic capacities that somebody has at the time. So that's part of the significance I take from that example is that good judgment is vulnerable to prejudice, really vulnerable to prejudice. And that's part of why we need to be incredibly vigilant about the nature of prejudice in the structures of our own judgments and our own social perceptions. Professor Sullivan agrees with Professor Fricker's assessment, but notes that it is difficult to highlight the potential role of juror prejudice due to the Supreme Court's 1987 decision in McCluskey v. Kemp that general evidence of racial disparities is not sufficient to determine that prejudice affected the outcome of any one trial. The defendant in McCluskey provided statistical evidence showing that black defendants who killed white victims were more likely to receive the death penalty than white defendants or black defendants with black victims. The court rejected that this statistical evidence alone could show a violation of McCluskey's constitutional rights. Well, I think the crucial thing is that a jury trial starts with a fundamental assumption that juries um, will and can be fair in a determination of the factual truth of the case. And, And I think that's kind of a default burden. So when you look at, you know, one of our famous U.S. Supreme Court cases like McCluskey, um, in McCleskey, McCleskey's defense, um, you know, presents the Baldus study and shows that, you know, we have great confidence that in Georgia we see these high correlations. If someone is charged with um, murdering a white versus murdering a black, they're much, much more likely to get the death penalty. And this and a variety of other, you know, facts of this mammoth study are brought to the court. And they're used by the defense to argue that there are really grave doubts about the fairness of his trial. McCleskey had 11 white jurors and one black juror. And the Supreme Court looks at all this and they say, well, you know, you know, this is sort of interesting, but it doesn't show us that the jury in McCleskey's case was biased, right? It just all it shows is that there's these big uh, potential problems structurally in Georgia but it doesn't show us anything about the particular jury. And absent a showing of bias by the particular jury, um, you know, our, our default assumption is they're fair. And that, I mean, I, I don't think the court's necessarily wrong given the history of American jurisprudence, but it shows you how much hangs on this presumption of fairness in the jury. Given the problems that result from epistemic injustice in the trial context, we asked our guests about some ways to address it. My main concern is we shouldn't have a knee-jerk reaction just to think because these challenges would, would require, you know, really rethinking these institutions that nothing can be done or it's not worth thinking about. Um, I think there's a lot of room, room out there to, you know, to do some studies, to do some mock trial situations, to invite various stakeholders in to talk about what's going on and to try to think about um, how we, we can make the jury do a better job at its biggest fundamental responsibility, which is um, to fairly ascertain what the truth of the matter is. Professor Sullivan has some proposed solutions. First, encourage collection and use of evidence that will help throw light on testimonial bias and hermeneutical capacities. The point is increasing the availability and disclosure of the kinds of information that help establish broader consensus on what occurred in particular cases, which taken together shine a light on what is happening more generally and which compel recognition of facts at odds with ready-made narratives that all too often serve the grounds upon which present power structures remain complacent. You know, another way to say that is first, encourage the collection, particularly by 
cameras and other surveillance equipment of evidence that will help throw light on testimony and bias in hermeneutic capacities. We should seize on that opportunity to collect, you know, camera surveillance because what it will it helps us to do is combat um, traditional biases where you know some people are believed and others aren't, and it it helps us. The more we see it in particular cases, my sense is that there's a larger chance that it will unsettle your default presumptions there and make you more thoughtful, even in the absence um, of camera footage. We haven't really seen that yet, but you know this is still, in a way, it's relatively new. The amount of footage is relatively new. The amount of coverage is relatively new. Um, my hope is that the more um, the the more we see the misalignment of traditional assumptions in, in camera footage and things like this, the more it will create a kind of thoughtfulness in juries as they go forward. So second, um, we should increase efforts to make judges and juries more representative of our democratic community and more cognizant of its diversity. Our judges should not only better represent the diversity of large democratic community, but also ensure that diversity informs the interpretive and meaning-making tasks that they undertake. If you don't have uh, a sort of a jury that's got a wide amount of diverse experiences, and by that also I think racial diversity and other things, you're liable to um, not have access in that jury room to a wide range of the hermeneutical background that helps make sense of various forms of testimony. Um, so the, the sort of more diverse the jury is, the more likely you'll have a jury discussion where you know people can at least put in context some of the different voices. Professor Fricker agrees that taking steps to increase jury diversity is a way to correct for implicit juror prejudices. The jury is an interesting uh, example of a, a, a collective epistemic subject, and there are obviously many things uh, about the social composition of a jury, which are designed, I mean, I'm in no position to speak to how successful it is, but designed to enable a kind of counteraction of different prejudices within the different members of the jury. So having a collective is another, and, and a collective of diverse social composition is another uh, thing that I think you know, it's, it's no guarantee, but it's it's a step in the right direction in terms of uh, decision making. I mean, it's very significant in the Tom Robinson to Kill a Mockingbird case that this was an all white jury judging uh, a black man in a context of racial prejudice. But if you can get a more socially diverse body of people making the judgments of credibility in any given context, that's surely one way to try and uh, improve the judgments that are made. One of Professor Sullivan's suggestions for increasing jury diversity involves modifying the use of peremptory challenges, the objections that lawyers or parties can make to strike proposed jurors without providing a reason. I do think we need to investigate the ways that preemptive challenges are being used and to consider constitutionally the arguments for restricting their use, particularly by the prosecution. One of the, the big issues that comes out, particularly in death penalty, but other serious cases, is, is you know, race, diversity according to race. And what you, you know, you know, we have Batson and we have Swan, we have all these things. We have this constant concern that uh, particularly the prosecution, but also the defense is trying to game the system by race because that will impact the results. 
and one thing I've always wondered about there and, you know, in talking to some death penalty attorneys like Chris Merle and others is it, it's I wonder about the symmetry with respect to um, preempts. And I wonder if the worry is sufficient that maybe we we shouldn't let prosecutors um, use peremptories at all. Professor Sullivan's third suggestion responds to recent research about implicit bias and tests that can make jurors more self-aware. Three is the idea that with all the work in implicit bias, which shows that um, well-meaning people who are convinced that they don't intentionally discriminate are often shown that in their you know, quick associations, it shows patterns of stereotyping and discrimination, um, that we might want to take that work and use it to think about what we might do with juries to help them at least be, you know, to understand that that's possible. Our, our general approach with juries is we impanel people on the jury and the message we send the jury is the community's got great faith in your objectivity. And, you know, sort of what I'm, I'm asking is in, in light of all the work on you know, with the IIT and implicit bias, um, maybe we shouldn't have great faith in, in, you know, the jury's objectivity or great faith in the objectivity of the larger community in the sense that um, maybe we all are at risk of, you know, making associative judgments based on stereotypes and whatnot. And maybe we're more at risk of that than we know. And that's what the implicit bias stuff tends to show. What I do is raise the question of whether we should in some way um, have a discussion with the jury that raises their consciousness about that fact so that they can ask themselves, you know, not only to judge the case before them, but to judge themselves as judging the case before them, to sort of ask themselves, okay, but, um, you know, do I have confidence that I'm not being motivated by stereotype or other things? And if I'm worried about that, are there ways I can talk to other jury members or things to, to try to give myself some critical handle on that? Professor Sullivan acknowledges the risk that by asking jurors to consider their biases, they may overcorrect or react defensively. In general, we found that it's unsuccessful to go to people and, and tell them, um, well, you know, you're, you're biased in some way. The, the general response is incredibly defensive and obstructionist and leads to less progress in certain kind of pluralistic dimensions. So I think it is a huge risk. Um, on the other hand, I, I don't think um, we haven't tried much. I'm a kind of you know, experimental pragmatist. We haven't tried much to see what we might do here to raise some consciousness about this in a way that, you know, doesn't make people defensive or doesn't make them overthink. I mean, I think we have pretty good evidence um, or, you know, <laughs> well, maybe it's not not super strong, but I, I think we have good reason to worry about, um, you know, based on the kinds of work that Frick and Medina do. To worry about the baseline functioning of juries when they're evaluating testimony and basically increase the efforts to make judges and juries more aware of the assumptions they bring into their interpretation of the meaning of our social practice. You know, it's one thing to make people aware uh, that they have certain associations. It's another to try to have a deeper discussion of, um, you know, how how people come to find social meaning in certain practices. And I'm not, you know, immediately sure how to, how to do that, but, but that's the challenge, right? The, the challenge is uh, to try to make people more aware of the problems of interpretation 
and the problems with the construction of social media. This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. This episode was produced by David Sandifer. Special thanks to Taylor Coles for suggesting this topic. Follow us on Twitter at UshaiElRev. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud.com slash UshaiElRev. Our new print issue, Volume 85, Issue 4, is out this week. Articles from the new issue and all prior issues of The Law Review are available at lawreview.uchicago.edu. The Law Review is also excited to announce a new blog launching in August. For more info, questions, or comments, please contact us on social media. Thanks for listening.